Hello and welcome to The Pioneers, brought to you in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet initiative. This series explores some of the most innovative ideas in science, technology, conservation, medicine and beyond that are making the world we live in a better place. In Pakistan, a high percentage of medical students are women. In fact, every year, the country trains thousands of female doctors, but the likelihood of them ever practising is extremely low, as the reason many of them train as doctors in the first place is in order to attract husbands. This is known as the doctor-brides phenomenon. One woman who is practising, however, is Sarah Saeed, founder of Serhat Kahani. She's trying to get these women back into medicine by setting up an e-medical centre that can be accessed over the phone or via an app. This means people in rural areas or from low-income households can access medical care by calling up these female doctors who can treat them remotely. The business started in 2017 in Karachi and now has over 20 outposts employing more than 1,500 women and treating tens of thousands of patients. To find out how Sarah Saeed is revolutionising the doctor's brides phenomenon and medical treatment in Pakistan, Monocle's Andrew Muller called her up. Let's start with the fact of you being a Rolex Associate Laureate. What difference has that made to your project so far? What it did when I came back home after I got the award was that a lot of people found out about what the Rolex Award was because there wasn't any any idea in people's mind. And then they learned the idea of Perpetual Planet and what the Rolex Award enterprise for enterprise means and to which individual it is given. Um, so it gave me a lot of exposure and suddenly a lot of credibility as well because uh, there are very few female founders in Pakistan who are doing a for-profit social enterprise and that is essentially an impact business for social good. So it gave me a lot of credibility as an individual female founder to stand up and talk to governments, to talk to big corporations, to talk to NGOs, to talk to partners and stakeholders about the seriousness of my work, about the importance of it and about the importance of scaling it uh, Pakistan-wide and also globally. So it has been your experience that the Rolex brand and the gravitas that brings with it did get you through doors which you'd found previously difficult to open? Yes, it was. And see, when I'm a middle-aged Pakistani woman, and again, there aren't many female founders who are doing, who are doing for-profit social enterprises who are scaling. Um, so whenever I talk to people, I need to have a certain credibility at my back. So, for example, when I talk to the government, when I talk to the government officials, uh, my Rolex Award nomination, as well as me getting the award, was tweeted uh, by the Ministry of Information in Pakistan. So that increased my credibility as uh, a female founder. And uh, yeah, it, it helped me open doors. It helped people get more serious about the work that I do and kind of understand the importance of it. And when globally a platform recognizes a work being done by a Pakistani, the audience in Pakistan themselves also understand the importance of it. Well, let's talk then about your project, uh, Sehat Kahani. Is there a direct English translation for that phrase? Yes, it means story of health. So Sehat means uh, health and Kahani means story. So essentially what Sehat Kahani is doing is we're catering to two uh, problems that exist in Pakistani health system today. So the first one is that a lot of people in Pakistan don't get to access a qualified doctor in their lifetime. Um, around 75% Pakistanis don't get to see a qualified doctor in their life. And the second uh, problem that we're addressing is that 
Majority of our medical workforce, almost 70%, is made up of female doctors, but unfortunately, only 23% of them are working at the moment. There's a huge gap between when female doctors graduate and when they practice, and this actually has a name. This gap is called the Dr. Bright phenomena in Pakistan, um, which means that between graduation and formal practice, a lot of females, they drop out due to social cultural constraints. So either they get married or they have children, or they're just not allowed by their in-laws to continue practicing anymore. Now, what it does in a fragmented system like Pakistan is um, people in low-income or rural communities, they don't get access to a doctor. And they end up getting access to nurses or quacks to midwives. So what we, what Sehat Kahanias does is we connect female doctors from our homes to patients in low-income or rural communities using telemedicine or video consultation. That is, if a doctor cannot reach a patient um, physically, then at least they can reach a patient um, virtually through telemedicine. And that's the core idea of our work. The phenomenon of the Dr. Bride, uh, I have to say, was new to me before I started researching this interview. And it is absolutely astonishing. Pakistan trains 150,000 female doctors every year. But as you point out, only a minority of them ever practice. Um, How has that come about? What is the cultural norm underpinning that? I guess the question I'm asking is, why do tens of thousands of women go through the extraordinary struggle to become a qualified doctor if they're not going to practice? Um, so I think, Andrew, what happens is um, because it's very important for a, for a female in Pakistan to have respect and nobility uh, because it's a patriarchal and a culturally conservative system. So we all want our women to be very respected. When you get a doctor's degree, it's a very noble and respected profession. So all parents, they want their daughters to become doctors, not just to, um, to, to practice medicine or to serve the communities. But they want their daughters to become female doctors so that they can get the best hand in marriage. They can be more noble and respected and have a higher social stature in society. And that happens. Uh, I myself uh, was a doctor bride. And when my parents-in-law approached me, they did want a doctor, a female doctor, to be wed into their family. But what happens is, unlike my in-laws, who are very supportive of the work that I do, a lot of in-laws, a lot of parents-in-laws, or a lot of husbands don't allow this female doctor to work. They just want their degree to hang on a wall and look nice and that doctor to look pretty. But in the end of the day, they want them to have children, become a homemaker and stay at home, not to bypass any cultural hierarchy or any cultural barrier, because it's also very respectable for a woman to stay at home in Pakistan and not work. So working, a woman working in Pakistan is generally not accepted by majority because of the cultural constraints. Um, so what happens is when they do bring a doctor in there, in their house as a wife or as a daughter-in-law, then they want them to become a homemaker and not work. And that usually happens to early stage doctors who've just graduated, who have not started working or worked three to six months or one year. The second stage when this happens is that even if they let the the female work, once she has children, they'll ask her to quit her job and look after the children. So the second stage when female doctors drop out of work is when they become mothers. And this happens when they've practiced for maybe three years or two years. But they don't reach the stage of specialization or complicated practice or more specialized form of medicine. And that's why we lack a lot of working female doctors from the ecosystem. 
The doctors that you've managed to involve in your program, have you had any reports from them of them encountering resistance from their their families or their social circles at them even returning to work as doctors within this system? So I think a very important thing that we do is when we bring that female doctor back, the first thing that we do is we ask them that do how comfortable are you in working? So how many hours of the day do you want to work? Do you want to work for three hours? Do you want to work for six hours? Do you want to work three days a week or six days a week? So they can choose that amount of time they want to spend uh, working with us because what we do in the communities is we make make clinics part in partnership with nurses. So we upgrade existing clinics in the communities and we train the nurse to learn a software by which she can connect the patient to an online doctor. And these doctors are cross-connected to different clinics. So we have an opportunity for having multiple doctors working in one clinic at multiple times. So they can even work three days a week, three hours a day. Because the female doctor is working from her home, she's not going out of the house. She's not leaving her children. Although we do have protocols that when she's working in the clinic from her home, she needs to follow a particular protocol of practice. Even then, she can pick and drop her children. She can make food for them. She can be be home when her husband is home. Um, so because they don't break any cultural barrier and they're, and they're there for their family as well, this form is generally more accepted. We've had doctors who were going under such mental depression. So we've had actually doctors who were in postpartum depression, who had anxiety issues, who who for even um, their, their self-esteem and their confidence had completely died because they weren't able to serve their purpose for which they had, had studied for around 16 to 17 years of their life. And suddenly they had to choose between their career and their family life. So I think it's a big boost of self-esteem when they come back to work. And husbands and family is supportive because they know that their daughter-in-law is now working also, but they're not neglecting the house, which is a big factor. Uh, So we've only seen positives of this. We've had few cases where husbands are also resistant when female doctors are working from their houses because they don't want them to work at all. But that has been a very minority number. And, And for that, we have so it's a good thing about having a network of female doctors is we just don't have general physicians we have specialists we have psycho- psychologists and psychiatrists as well so this community of female doctors which is around 1500 right now is also very beneficial for the doctors themselves because then they can reach out to those psychologists and psychiatrists for specialized help if they need it so that's the beauty of creating this community of doctors in itself for the patient who approaches Sahat Kahani, what kind of technology do they need to be able to get access to? So we have two kinds of products and they're based on a different set of target market. For low-income patients who don't have access to smartphones and technology themselves, we create clinics, as I told you, where a patient can come to a physical space, get connected to a physical nurse who's sitting, who's going to connect him to the doctor. So in that case, they don't need access to technology. They just need to physically come to the clinic and get connected to a doctor through a nurse. And the nurse has a laptop on which she functions. She first enters the data of the patient, the history that she takes and then she connects the patient to the doctor through our online software. But we also have a product for middle and high income markets because access to a doctor is not just an issue of the low income. It's also the issue of the middle and high income in terms of quality, in terms of accessibility, in terms of cost effectiveness. Um, So we have a mobile app as well that a patient can download and they can get connected to a doctor themselves um, uh, using that application. So in that case, we have a web portal and a mobile application for individual users as well. Are there any gaps, do you think, in 
what level of care can be offered by a remote or semi-detached system like this versus what can be offered by face-to-face consultation? Yeah, so I think when we talk about healthcare, Pakistan has a very fragmented healthcare system. So how healthcare should be delivered in Pakistan is there's a primary care system that filters into a secondary care that filters into a tertiary care system. It's it's a lot like NHS. Uh, and the UK market. But because we don't have doctors, specifically female doctors, at the primary care level, a lot of patients eventually start going to tertiary care centers, increasing the load to tertiary care centers. So what we are trying to do is we're trying to uh, decrease the load of tertiary care centers by providing primary care. So telemedicine is essentially more suitable to primary care and early stage secondary care. Um, In our clinics also, we have general physicians, we have specialists, we have labs, ultrasounds, in a small pharmacy available, but we also have a tertiary care referral mechanism for patients who can't be seen through telemedicine. So if there's a patient who is in a state of emergency or labor, having cardiac arrest, or has an issue that cannot be dealt through on primary care, we refer the patients to tertiary care. Uh, But in a lot of ways, the data says that 70% of people who are going to tertiary care centers are actually primary care patients and cannot be de- can be dealt at a primary care level. And that's the market that we are trying to cater to so that patients' disease can be identified and recognized at an early stage and also can be dealt with so that they don't end up going to tertiary care centers at a more complicated stage. You mentioned earlier that a great many Pakistani people live their entire lives without ever having a consultation with a qualified doctor. So presumably for a lot of people, this, your project, is their first contact with a qualified doctor. What kind of impact have you seen that have in the lives of individual patients? See, I think if I talk about a little a little of our success stories, which we feel that is is has been a great impact, we've actually um, treated infertility in a woman who'd had four miscarriages and two stillbirths, and we've helped her get pregnant and actually have a healthy baby. We've diagnosed thyroid cancer in a 16 year old only on history and examination. We've identified cardiac defects. So in a lot of times, uh, it's actually a benefit in disguise when they haven't been to a quack or a midwife, because when you get such patients, they from the first uh, consultation feel very privileged to be talking to a female doctor. For them, we we assume that they won't be interested in going to uh, a doctor on a, on a virtual call. But we've seen that if the nurse, who's the main intermediary, is... is um, is is championing for our work. They actually really like to be seen on a video call. It's very interesting and exciting for them. And at the end of the day, the patients do recognize the value of quality care. So when the doctor starts talking to them and they start discussing their issues, when they know the right information to give to the patient, patients are actually very smart. They start recognizing that this person is the best person for me. And that's why we've been able to create more success in our clinics. So our breaking even number in the clinics is 350 patients per clinic per month. And around 70% of our clinics have reached that number um, in, in, in one year or, or one and a half years. And that's exactly because we've had patients who are interested in the service and want to come back again and again to show to the same doctor. Do you know yet or do you have an, an approximate number for how many patients you've managed to see in total with this project? Yeah, so if, if, if I include the month of January, then we've seen around 126,000 patients as uh, consultations. And these all have been paid consultation because Sehat Kahani is a sustainable social enterprise. So we 
take money from the patient and we give an incentive to the nurse from that money and we try to create sustainable clinics. So these all have been paid customers who are taking teleconsultation by will from a female doctor through telemedicine. I mean, that is an objectively decent sized number in itself, but obviously we are talking about a country of just over 200 million people. I think it's very easy to forget how vast Pakistan is. Uh, How do you see the network expanding in coming years? Do you think there is an upper limit on what kind of difference it can make? Yes, I think... um We've, we've just started. We've just been in business for the last three years. And in when we were starting initially, we started with one clinic in the first year, around six clinics in the second year. This is only last year that we've expanded our network of clinics to 26 clinics and launched our mobile as well. How Sehat Kahani envisions its scale, because we're dealing with a country of 206 million people right now, is that we need to create a blended network of care. So, As internet penetration is increasing in Pakistan, more and more people will have access to smartphones. So we want to be in a position in the next five years that Sehat Kahani is present in every patient's mobile phone who have access to smartphones. And if they they don't have access to smartphones even then, or they have complicated issues for which they need to be physically checked by a nurse and by a virtual doctor, they can just walk into the clinic. So creating a blended hub and spoke model that can eventually connect them to tertiary care hospitals. We also believe that the um, eventual scale of the model will be when government becomes a partner and we can contract out primary care clinics from the government, which is something that we're working on right now with the governments uh, so that we can create a public-private partnership with governments in which they can contract out primary care centers to Sehat Kahani, which can be upgraded into telemedicine centers and also having our app integrated within their networks. So that, I think, is the eventual scale by which we can reach the mass market as primary health care providers. How much official encouragement have you had from Pakistan's government on that subject? I'm just wondering if, if they, because obviously they need to be mindful of political reality, if they're at all nervous about maybe being seen to participate in something which which undermines the kind of social norms that caused the Dr. Bride phenomenon in the first place. So I think the good thing was that when we started this business and we started talking to people, uh, the governments also start to recognize how big an issue the Dr. Bright phenomena was. I remember I gave an interview in the newspaper and it just got replicated in all newspapers and the government's officials were talking about it. The health ministers were talking about it. So they definitely know that the Dr. Bright phenomena exists. They talk about it. The solution, however, is a bit new for them to understand. The government will take time to recognize that telemedicine is the next innovation of healthcare. We've managed, because in Pakistan, health is a provincial subject and it's after devolution, every province has to make their own healthcare models of delivery. We've managed to talk to two uh, provincial governments right now to adapt to our model, to partner with us. But I think convincing the governments that using Dr. Bryce through telemedicine is a, a very new phenomenon for them. And it will require a lot of uh, reinforcing from our end, as well as other partners who are coming into the space of telemedicine, for them to officially recognize it. But I think after the garment change, we've seen them understanding the value of digital health. And a certain, certainly, I think the path from here will be easier as it was when we started.
Well, is there any hope, I guess, to ask a similar question, any hope on your part that there will be a a measure of social change brought about by your project as well, in that it might normalise the idea that women can, of course, practice medicine after they've married and had a family? It, it just strikes me that that extraordinary number, that 150,000 women qualify as doctors in Pakistan every year, should be the kind of thing that a country would boast about. Yeah. So Pakistan has a total network of 170 doctors, out of which around 63 to 70% is female doctors. So if you do a rough math, then there are around 80,000 female doctors um, that are a potential market that we can that we can capture. I think that there's a general phenomenon in Pakistan that a female patient will not show to a male doctor, but a male patient will show to a female doctor because of out of respect or nobility that she has. Um, so, so an idea of female doctor working through telemedicine, I think, is even accepted right now. We haven't had any resistance to it. See, how we measure our success in terms of patient impact is what quality we are adding to their health. So for us, engaging with the patient at a primary care level is very important because if they get the right advice at the right stage, it can help them to to develop more complicated disease or to have malpractice or malnegligence. So our success uh, lies in how much quality that we're providing at the patient at an early stage. And I think we're doing that right now. But when we scale and when we grow, I think the impact uh, will generally come from us being one of the partners in this one of the partners in the ecosystem. the The total holistic social change will happen when we fix our primary care, when we when we start using preventive care as an effective tool in our health policy, and we work on our tertiary care to manage patients better. I think these vehicles will will all come together as one ecosystem to create that social change. Well, just finally, then, we talked a bit earlier about maybe your ultimate long term ambitions for your project. But if we if we focus that on the next year or so, what do you hope to have accomplished by the end of 2020? So I think in in until 2020, I think we have very specific goals that we re- want to reach. We want to launch. We want to scale up to 48 clinics across Pakistan. We want to initiate two uh, public-private partnerships with two provinces uh, so that we can reach scale through government partnerships. We are working on our mobile app so that we can create its mass market usage through different marketing campaigns. So we're looking for at least 10,000 users for our application uh, individually that we can cater to. That's, I think, and, and ultimately we want to have around 5,000 doctors in the health ecosystem that we can add by the next year so that we can have a big pool of doctors from which we can choose which doctors you want to have in the app and in the clinic. So that, I think, is the roadmap for the next one year that we have. That was Sarah Saeed, founder of Sahat Kahani and a 2019 Rolex Associate Laureate. We'll be back next week with more insights from some fascinating people with truly groundbreaking ideas. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher for Monocle24.